Hello, welcome to Rational Investing. My name is Cameron Stewart, CFA. Thank you very much for watching the YouTube channel and uh, listening to the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, this week, we're going to dive into J.P. Morgan Chase, the behemoth of bank. Uh, the banking industry, industry is a hot topic right now with the uh, collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, as we speak this weekend, as I'm filming this, the regulators at the FDIC are uh, trying to auction, trying to scramble and auction off the company to buy it because it's uh, it's failed due to a mismatch of assets and liabilities, which I will cover today. And we will check J.P. Morgan Chase for the same flaw. Ready? Let's get to work. Okay, let's dive into J.P. Morgan Chase's financials. Please read the 10K um, uh, for the for this stock or any stock you're looking at. Make your own decisions. This is not financial advice. Uh, this is just me uh, looking at uh, stocks that I find interesting. We're going to begin looking at the assets for J.P. Morgan Chase. And behind me, I have listed the assets for the last nine years for the stock. So we need a feel for exactly how big this stock is. Now, normally what we do for companies is we have a specific model that we review here at the Cash Flow Club. We look for growing revenue, growing earnings, strong free cash flow, low debt, and a well-priced stock. Banks and insurance companies are different. You need to look at book value and you generally measure uh, net income relative to book value for a yield rather than EBITDA because banks and insurance companies use cash as a product. And it's very difficult to pull apart the cash flow statement to figure out what cash is cash generated from business activities and what cash is generated by customers depositing money into the bank, as an example, or for, uh, for an insurance company paying out claims or receiving premiums. So it's, it's a little bit of a different business, therefore it needs a different model. This is the banking model that I use. So here we go. In 2014, the bank had $2.57 trillion in total assets. In 2015, that came down a bit to 2.35, then 2.49, then 2.5. Five three trillion by 2017. It grew from there 2.6, 2 2.68, 3.38, 3.7, and then 3.665 or 3.7 trillion dollars in assets uh, last fiscal year. Now the way you want to compare, the way you want to look at a bank or an insurance company is the net book value. Net book value is assets minus liabilities minus some other special things like goodwill intangibles. Those are assets that are, you, there's no real liquid value to them. And, and you want to subtract off preferred stock as well because we want to know what, what assets are available to the common equity owners. Uh, so you want to take off preferred stock. So we look at goodwill intangibles, really, really small relative to total assets. So we're talking as of last fiscal year in 2022, $60 million of goodwill and intangible assets on an asset base of $3.66 trillion. So it's essentially nothing. Fine. Let's move on. Liabilities, total liabilities and preferred stock last fiscal year in 2022, $3.4 trillion. It assets, $3.665. <clears throat> total liabilities, $3.4. Book value, $204 million. Now, if I look at book value in its totality, over the last nine years, I can get a pattern here and see what's going on. In 2014, book value $155 billion. And that has grown quite nicely every single year over the last nine years from $155 billion to $166 billion to $173 billion, 
175 billion, 176, 180, 195, 202, and 204. Uh, beautiful religious march at, a, at an average 3.5% growth rate over the last nine years. Very nice track record, especially in a market with interest rates at near zero for the most part of this time frame. Banks operate right on a net interest margin where they take the deposits, uh, the interest that they're paying out as deposits versus the interest they can lend on from those deposits. That's their revenue is the net interest margin. <clears throat> for them to be able to continue to march book value forward at 3.5% during that time frame is, is pretty nice. Uh, that's how we want to judge their value. And this is actually where Silicon Valley Bank, uh, which I'll reference in a second because it's kind of the, the, the hot topic at the moment, got in trouble. Uh, their assets here had a piece called the held to maturity security. It's an asset that they never intended to sell, but due to customer demand for cash, they had to liquidate it in order to satisfy the customer's demand for cash. Now, who are their customers? Silicon Valley Bank, specifically, most of their customers are the VC world and the tech companies, which are burning cash and in a down market, can't issue equity all that well to backfill cash losses. They have to go to their cash reserves at Silicon Valley Bank, which forced them to sell assets prior to the maturity. They got less value and that caused book value to decline because the assets themselves failed to hold up to the value that was stated on the balance sheet. And again, we'll get there in a second, but I wanted to give you an idea of how book value can be changed if the assets on the balance sheet don't come to fruition. So then what we can do is we can look at book value per share. If I simply take the shares that's and divide by the book value, I see a nice growth rate in book value per share. In fact, let me just look at this average growth rate for a second. Uh, that's not going to make any sense. Here we go. 6.7% uh, annual march forward on the book value per share. That's probably going to include some share buybacks that they've been doing. Um, single digit, not great, to be honest. Right, especially when the stock market itself is going meteoric at this period of time. But for bank, okay, fine. Uh, market cap, market cap is two hundred and thirty-seven billion dollars as of twenty fourteen. That two hundred and, and it traded at a price to book of one and a half times, which is a, which was a reasonable price to pay for a Behemoth Bank. Uh, that book value has grown over time to just shy of four hundred billion dollars in the last fiscal year, and that trades it now in even two times book value, which in my opinion is a premium. Um, well, it is a premium. Banks usually change it one times book value. Uh, here at JP Morgan, such a dominant force has been bailed out by the government before. They're not going to, you know, the risk of it failing again uh, and, and having the equity holders completely lose out is probably, uh, probably low. So it gets a premium. Uh, certainly being able to grow in a market with very, very low interest rates um, I would guess deserves a premium, but they get one at two times. It's been as low as one and a half, but at $400 billion right now at market cap, two times the book value price, it's a decent premium. Let's take a look at net income and revenue. All right, revenue for JP Morgan uh, is 2014. It is as of obviously December ending uh, numbers, 2014, uh, 91.9, we'll call it $92 billion of top line revenue. Uh, that went to 90, uh, kind of a little little short, little drop there in 2015. But they picked it back up in 2016, 91, then 95, 103, 110, 
20, excuse me, 102 during the pandemic, that bounced back to 130, and then now last year down a little bit, 122 billion dollars of revenue. If I take this in totality over the lifetime, excuse me, the time period they're looking at, the nine years, that's a growth rate on average, average CAGR of three and a half percent, three point six percent, which by the way matches the book value growth rate over time, which is nice to see. So we're seeing income revenue grow at three and a half percent, roughly. Book value grow at roughly three and a half percent. Looks to me pretty interesting. Uh, net income was surprising to me. So net income, they actually were able to grow at seven and a half percent. That's been growing faster than uh, than the book value. We can get that to that in a minute. Net income in 2014 was 20 billion dollars on revenue of 91 billion. I'll do a little net margin over here off to the side so you can kind of see. That's a 22 percent net margin on uh, earnings in 2014. Net income has grown from 20 to 22.6, 22.8, 22.5, and $30 billion by 2018. That continued to grow from 30 to 34, dropped to 27 during the pandemic, back up to 46 billion in 2021, and it looks like it kind of normalized a little bit in line with revenue, it slightly down at $35.9 billion last fiscal year on a revenue of 122 billion, which is basically a 30% margin. So they've gone from say 22, 25 uh, net income margin to about 30% margin over this time frame. probably leaning on uh, other services, not exactly bank lending and net interest margin because uh, the, uh, the, the, the net interest margin has been so thin historically, but they've been relying more on investment banking services uh, and other financial products in the hot financial market that is boosting earnings. That might come down a little bit in the future, um, but it might also not. If interest rates are going up, the ability for the bank to lend higher than they pay out is going to widen and their earnings should grow, which would be nice for once for a bank to be able to make a bit more money than they have in the, in the past. Shares outstanding. Wonderful clip here of uh, buying back uh, shares. 3.8 billion shares outstanding in 2014. That has come down to 3.5, 3.4, 3.23, then just shy of 3 billion, 2.97 billion in 2022. And that has come down on average 3% per year over this um, nine year period of time. Roughly, uh, what's that? Uh, 800 million shares they've taken out of the market. Uh, that's a big, big chunk of shares that they've bought back from the market, torn up and throw away. And that is why you're seeing the book value uh, per share grow faster than book value. It's because book value's growth is being compounded by the fact that there's fewer shares to divide that growing book value into. Same thing with, with earnings per share uh, for, for normal companies. Earnings are growing. That's one of the hallmarks we look for. And then if you're buying back stock, the earnings growth on a per share basis is even higher and you get that kind of hockey stick looking return. Uh, so earnings per share here, roughly $12 um, uh, last year. It's just net income uh, divided by shares. And uh, prior to that, early in the decade, you're looking at about $6. So earnings per share have almost doubled over this period of time on a net income divided by share. 
The share price itself has also doubled, so the earnings yield, when I take net income divided by price, uh, price per share, I get basically a, a 9 to 10% earnings yield. Um, and, and currently it's paying about nine, so it's, pro it's about where it normally has been historically. All right, let's take a look at the asset quality quickly. I wanna run through Silicon Valley Bank. I'm gonna put this in the middle of the uh, video presentation. So for the loyal fans that watch the show or listen to the podcast, you're gonna get a great understanding of why Silicon Valley Bank collapsed and why JP Morgan won't collapse. Uh, for those that are skipping to the end, uh, they're gonna miss this cool part. So why did Silicon Valley Bank collapse? Behind me is the balance sheet for Silicon Valley Bank as of December 31st, 2022. You can see a lot of these numbers were even present in prior quarters. Uh, it's simply ignored because people weren't looking at the detail. Here's the balance sheet, and I'll go through my, my chicken scratch handwriting in a second, but I've highlighted a few red boxes. Uh, I've got goodwill and intangibles. I've got total assets and total liabilities. That's the same calculation that we just went through for JP Morgan Chase. So I'm taking total total assets here, less total liabilities here, less these guys, and I get $15.8 billion of a tangible equity value, or tangible book value for Silicon Valley Bank. The interesting thing here is that most of these assets are underpinned by this large number, $91 billion of held to maturity securities. Now, what is a held to maturity security? Let's go read the definition. Well, securities classes classified as HTM are accounted for at cost with no adjustment for the change in fair value. This is directly from Silicon Valley's uh, 10K. It says that, hey, we don't change the value. Any change in or losses are, sep are a separate piece of the shareholder's equity and amortized over the life of the security. That's not expensed on the income statement and it's not shown on the balance sheet in the asset section. So what is in their portfolio of held to maturity securities? Well, it's gonna be mostly $57 billion of MBS mortgage-backed securities. Yes, those things again. So a mortgage-backed security is a typically for these guys 10 to 30 year in bond investment that they own at a fixed rate that someone's paying a fixed rate for 10 to 30 years on their maturity. Well, if interest rates move up, and that and that and that security when it was a, the, the and and the mortgage, when it was originally priced, originally penned with the deal, rates were at rock bottom lows. So that mortgage interest rate is really tiny that's paying the bank. It's paying the bank a very small amount of interest and it's fixed. But then the Fed says, hey, I'm gonna raise interest rates. So now you can get a current mortgage at a high interest rate and you have this other mortgage paying you a fixed low, make, low rate. Well, what the, what's the problem is? That means this mortgage here is worth a whole lot less than a brand new mortgage. And the only way to get this interest rate equal to this interest rate is to reduce the price of this mortgage so that the interest rate, the effective interest rate will climb to be market. That's what happens. And the unrealized loss on this amounted to a lot. Let's take a look at it. All right, behind me is the unrealized loss. Now this is all in their 10Ks. They disclosed it and, and this loss was building over time. So you can see here's the health to maturity securities, the unrealized loss, $15 billion. This $15 billion wipes out the equity, the tangible equity value they had on their balance sheet. 
this last adjustment here is me pushing through the unrealized loss and it zeroes out their tangible equity value. That's what happened to Silicon Valley Bank. Now, this was as of December. The Fed kept raising interest rate. This filming is a, as of mid-March. Interest rates have moved. It means that unrealized loss has only gotten larger. And once the bank has upside down, meaning more liabilities than assets, the, the Fed step in, seize the assets to control the sale and auction off the process to try to make the customers as whole as possible. That's what happened. They had a mismatch of assets and liabilities. They made an investment into a security that needed to be held for 10 to, 20, 10 to 30 years. They had customers who were mostly Silicon Bank, VC funds, or cash burning uh, companies in the tech world that need cash. And when the stock market fell, those tech companies could no longer issue stock like they were. They had to become profitable. They were burning cash. They went to their banks and said, hey, I want my savings. Well, they all did that at once, forcing Silicon Bank to go to their reserves, liquidate those. When they liquidated those, they were at less than their stated value. And suddenly, boom, an unrealized loss becomes a realized loss. Now that we understand how Silicon Valley Bank went under, let's check JP Morgan. What killed Silicon Valley Bank? The, the securities held to maturity, not being marked to market. So assets, JP Morgan, December 2022, held to security, held to maturity securities, 425 billion. That's a lot. That's a lot on $3.6 trillion of assets. Okay, so slightly more than 10% of their total assets is this bucket. That's a whole lot more than uh, than Silicon Valley, but let's see what's held inside here. Okay, search their 10K and you will find the securities held to maturity uh, right here. This is, they break it out, 2022, un gross unrealized gains, gross unrealized losses. You wanna come down and you'll see right there, $36 billion is the total held to maturity securities unrealized loss for JP Morgan. So they have on their balance sheet, $425 billion. If they sold it today, assuming they're marking this stuff to market appropriately, that's a whole nother issue with the financial crisis, them not marking the market securities fast enough. But assuming this is correct, $36 billion needs to be written off for an actual value of 388 billion. So here we go. We got held to maturity securities, 425 billion, realized loss, actual value. This $36 billion realized loss, let's check their book value. What's the book value of JP Morgan? 200 billion. So if you mark down 36 billion, there's still plenty, plenty of room here. So the asset quality of JP Morgan, at least with this particular measure, assuming they've, uh, they've, they're marking to market correctly and disclosing it correctly, is not material. In fact, it's only $12 a share current of the, the current marking to market. So it, they definitely have very large sustainable uh, book value. When I do the adjustment the same way we did with Silicon Valley Bank would zero their tangible equity. Here, they still have 200 or maybe 175, 74 billion dollars of tangible equity value. So there's still plenty there. Let's forecast JP Morgan and figure out if it's a good buy or not. 
Okay, let's start forecasting with book value. Now, book value was growing at 3.6% over time. I'm gonna give it a 3% growth rate to be a little conservative. That gives me a $210 billion valuation next year. That 210 billion will grow to just shy of 275 billion out 10 years from now. I'm gonna apply a conservative 1.5 times book value to price to this, which is less than the two it currently trades at. So a little market multiple contraction here, which is gonna weigh on our pricing a little bit. 1.5 times a book value of $274 billion gives me a market cap of $411 billion. Divide by shares of just shy of three billion gives me a share price estimate out 10 years for JP Morgan of $138.51. Now, if I do the same logic, but for earnings, earnings growth, 3% over time, $12.11 grows to $14.76 at a 10% yield. Remember, it's currently yielding 9%, so increase the yield a little bit to be a little bit more conservative. Gives me a price forecast of $147.65. Now let's look at the market and see what JP Morgan's trading at. It's currently trading at $133 per share. I can buy it and hold it for a decade and it'll be worth roughly $143 a share. Now, if I buy it and I get a company that's generating earnings over time, assuming all these earnings are distributed, which is not entirely true, but they can distribute it, they can use it to buy back shares, they can hold it on the balance sheet, or they can um, dividend it out. I'll get this stream of cash flow, which, which produces roughly a 12% return, which is a slightly market beating return for JP Morgan. If I put it into a distribution curve, and let's say you're looking at this video, six months have gone by, the price of JP Morgan is no longer 130, it's higher at 160, or it's lower, say 100 bucks. Given the same forecast, with all the assumptions behind me, right, it's just math, this is just the, the math piece of the exercise. It would say that if the, if the share price approaches $100, which it did not too long ago, back in October, it fell almost to $100 a share. And with the current economic shakeup going on, the share price could fall again. If it does, it would be a very interesting buy closer to $100. It's still a value currently, and I think it could outperform the market over the next decade, given the market should return about 10%. This is saying 12. If it goes higher from here, I would not be a buyer. I try to utilize the the, the downturn of the market to your advantage. So what rating do we wanna give JP Morgan? Well, based on what we saw here at this high level analysis, again, please read the 10Ks, do your own due diligence, make your own decisions. This is my channel, just a fun exercise. I'm gonna give it a good, uh, when I go through the stock, I like the company, I like management team, and I like what they are doing. I certainly know a number of bankers in JP Morgan and have used them as a corporate finance CFO for years as a treasury service. Uh, and so I, I have a high regard for the, the, the people at JP Morgan, how they run. And when I look at the numbers, the numbers seem good too. So check out JP Morgan. Let me know what you think. Throw me a comment down below if you read, if you listened to the um, Silicon Valley piece in the middle of this uh, to make sure you, you watch the full, uh, the full video. Let me know what other stocks you'd like to see. I'm happy to do them. Um, also, if you like what I'm doing, I highly recommend you check out my website, cashflowinvestingpro.com, where I teach a, a financial course. I'll teach you how to review companies. Uh, this is a specific bank model, but I have a normal course that goes over 
almost all other companies, not banks and insurance companies, they're a bit more complex, but your standard run of the manufacturing or software company or food service company, I show you how to calculate revenue and EBITDA, how to calculate debt, free cash flow, how to build a forecast and how to judge if the risk reward trade-off between you putting your hard-earned money into a company and holding it for 20 years is worth it. Check that out. Also, I highly recommend the Cash Flow Club. If you like these videos and you want a bit more, uh, more variety, we have a number of analysts that are participating in the Cash Flow Club at cashflowinvestingpro.com. It's a monthly membership, but inside you get one-pagers like look like this, and we review a whole lot of stocks. These one-pagers give you 10 years of uh, financial information on a stock. We review the five key attributes, top-line revenue growth, earnings growth, free cash flow, uh, low debt, and well-priced stocks, and give you analysis. And we try to call out stocks that are off the beaten path, uh, things that we think are truly uh, uh, low debt, high cash yielding opportunities for a potential investor. Take a look at that. Let me know what you think. And um, uh, this is JP Morgan. My name is Cameron Stewart, CFA. This is Rational Investing. Thank you so much for the time. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.